Good morning. How's everybody? I hope you got your, your boots on, okay? I wore my, my boots. Hopefully you've got your work boots on, maybe some steel toes, because, um, you know, God's been stepping on my toes a little bit here with this. My job is to now step on your toes a bit now with that. So anyway, um, we will, with that, we will get started here. Um, if you're new this morning, We want to say welcome. We're really grateful that you came this morning, that you chose to worship with us. If you're new online, uh, we're thankful as well. And as was stated, we hope that you might find a church home here as you seek that out. This morning's message um, is is 1 Peter. We're continuing through the book of 1 Peter. So we started at uh, 1-1. We are now at uh, 2-13, and we'll go through 25 in this study. And uh, I just talked about this. It's called doulos, and doulos is a Greek word. That means servant. It means basically really, in essence, it's more than just a servant or a simple servant. It really is a a slave, one who has given themselves over completely and totally to their master. So we'll get started here. Uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 13, says this. It says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, why do we do this? Well, it tells us right here in the very beginning. It talks about this. It says, for the Lord's sake. And when it says for the Lord's sake, it's not because God is needing us to do something because he is without any need, but it, it means it has the idea of because of or on account of the Lord, uh, we should do this. We should submit ourselves to every uh, human institution. There is a reason for this. It is the will of God that we would do this, and it silences evildoers, it says. So what's the first thing that crosses your mind when we say submit? Maybe it looks something like this, (laughs) right? Isn't this the way we think of the idea of submission in our culture today? The reality of submission and the concept of submission is that our culture has taken the whole thing and really hijacked it and made it an ugly thing. We've made it a thing that has in our minds just a negative connotation. It means to surrender. It means to have to tap out. It has the idea of being dominated or or overwhelmed. But biblically, the word submit means this. It means to willingly place yourself under. So, so God, as, as we're told to, to submit to Christ or, or submit to one another and these kinds of different things or submit to the authorities in our lives, we're not told that, that it's this idea or it comes out of this space of that we've been put in this hold and we've got this, we've got this uh, you know, naked chokehold that we're in and we're going to have to tap out of that and that's the idea of submission. That isn't the idea at all. The idea of submission is that we would willingly place ourselves there. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, it's a military term, and it has no, no, no connotation whatsoever with weakness. In other words, let's say if, if, if you knew somebody who was a Navy SEAL, and that Navy SEAL, the, 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 the best thing that that Navy SEAL can do with his strength is to put it under the authority of his commanding officer. And if he won't do that, if he refuses to do that, he actually becomes a liability within a SEAL team. He's not, his power isn't brought into the right place. So in his submission to his commanding officer, he takes his rightful position. He takes his right place. He takes his right place within uh, that, that authority unit 
and, and, and then his power becomes incredibly effective. So it's not the idea that he's a weak man. His strength is actually brought under control. And this is the idea really of meekness. The idea of meek does not equal weak. Meekness is power that's brought under control. It's not power that is wildly and, and, and recklessly exerting itself. So this whole concept of submission is one that we really need to re-grab as Christians and within the church. As a matter of fact, when Jesus, the Son, submitted his will to the Father's will, that was not an ugly thing. That was not a thing in which he was placed. It was a place where he willingly went, him and the Father, and there was a beauty and there was a, uh, a cooperative effort that was brought forth out of that. So as we move into this, you know, we want to look and we always want to find Scripture if you only ever find one scripture, then, then, then we're not going to be dogmatic on that. If we found one place in scripture that deals with an issue, then, then that really takes us to a spot as Christians that we need to say, look, we can't really be super dogmatic about this because we only find this one place in scripture. And, and sometimes that's clearer and sometimes that's not quite as clear. But here we see in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, it says, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So it's this idea and it's this struggle that we have because the reality of you and me is that to rebel is human, right? To, to just become and just to go into defiance against was the very thing that happened in the garden. It's the very root struggle of who we are. It's, it's part of the root struggle of, of just our humanness is this idea of rebellion, of pushing away from God and going our own way. And the reality of God's kingdom is that it's nothing like yours or mine. See, the reality of, of being created in God's image says this, it says that, that you may be created in God's image, therefore you may have some semblance of God in you, but God is nothing like you or me. His kingdom is completely different than the one that we would create and the one that we would push forward in the world around us. So, so to submit really becomes this divine thing, and this offends us. This is an offense to us. It's an offense to our heart. It's certainly an offense to our American independence and we don't really understand it. You see, our Western thought really gives us struggle and, and causes us pause in this. As a matter of fact, Eastern thought, or, or for them, the idea of submission was much more natural. It was much more um, about family and a bigger picture and things like that than one's personal independence. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came up and he spoke to them. He said, saying this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. As we just read in Romans 13, it says really that the reality of it is is that subjection to our governing authorities is, is submission to God. It's actually following God. It's the recognition that all authority is given to him, comes through him. All authority is Jesus's, right? That we're not living in a world or in a culture that's spinning out of control, that the reality of it is, is that he has set the leadership of the world in place, and it is as he does it. Proverbs 21, uh, 18 says this. It says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. 
Psalm 22, verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Daniel 2, verse 21, it is he who, charges, who changes the times and the periods. He removes kings and appoints kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to people of understanding. And then John 18, verse 36, says, Jesus answered them, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And so Jesus very clearly is telling us that he has a different way of dealing with things. He has a different way of approaching much of life, almost like all of it, than we do. That our struggle is, is, is not uh, with him or, or with, with these Sometimes these authorities, and sometimes it is, we're going to look at that, we're going to, we're going to look at that, but, but there's a standard, and we're going to look at what is the standard by which we begin to really rebel, okay? So Peter himself, he understands this. He's heard these words himself, right? He's the guy who in the middle of the garden had told Jesus, look, I'm going to follow you, and I'll follow you to death, and I'll prove it to you. I'll show you, Right? Because he's a stand-up kind of guy. So here comes a whole cohort of Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus in the garden. And what happens? Peter pulls his sword out and hacks some dude's ear off, right? Malchus, the, 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 the high priest's servant, he hacks his ear off, right? And it's not because he's a bad shot. It's probably because he was trying to take his head off and the guy ducked, right? And Jesus says, whoa, put your sword away. You live by that thing, you'll die by it, Right? If I wanted to, all I'd have to do is call, and legions of angels would come down. This thing would be over now. But that's not how my kingdom is going to further itself. So this becomes really the principal factor. It's not whether we want principles or, or, or these ideas or things like this to be lived out in our culture. Do we want them? Absolutely. How do we get there becomes the bigger question. And the one that we really have to look at and wrestle with and look at God's word and say, how do we get there? Verse 16 goes on to say this. It says, act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the king. And so, so there's this idea here that says, look, you're not captive to your government. You're a free people. Now act like free people. Act like you've been bought. Act like you've been purchased. That your life is now not your own but then it's been bought, and not by cheap stuff. Remember, like Peter began this thing, not by cheap stuff like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus. This is what our lives have been purchased with, and this is our position that we live in free as free people knowing that this is not our final destination. This is, not where we're, this is not where it ends for us. Regardless, we're told to be a people who live in joy, and what is joy? Joy is being okay despite your circumstances. So Christians, for all of history, up until actually very recent history here in America, have almost never lived in comfort. They've almost never lived without difficulty from the government that they were under. As a matter of fact, these guys are writing these letters and writing these things as they sit under Nero, who is a guy who is impaling Christians, dipping them in oil, lighting them on fire, and lighting up his garden parties at night for all to see. So, so this isn't a government that they're in agreement with, and the standard by which they do this is not by their agreement. See, we want to do what we want to do if we agree with it. 
And there's a higher call in this. There's a call that says, no, your job is to emulate Christ. Your, your job is to push his kingdom forward by his methods and by his ways, not by human ways. So what do we do that? This word here, bond servants of God, is doulos. It's this idea that you have been actually, that you are willfully committing yourself to your, to your master. See, slavery was a very different thing in their culture back then. Um, uh, slavery didn't look like what, the way we think about it. Slavery wasn't this idea that, that like we're gonna go and, and we're gonna, against someone's will, take them away from all of what they know and everything and bring them over here and without pay or without anything, we're gonna hold them under um, our, uh, our power and our control and, and they're gonna have to just be our slaves. That's, that's not the picture of slavery that was going on in the Bible. That's not the type of slavery. As a matter of fact, what was going on was generally indentured servitude. It was, it was generally people owed somebody money and they had to pay it back. And about a third of Rome was in that system. So we know, as a matter of fact, that it's not good for a nation or for the people of a nation to borrow more money than they're able to pay back. That doesn't serve a nation well. That didn't serve this nation well in 2008 when we had a housing crisis because lenders had allowed too many people to borrow more money than what they were able to repay. And so we had a housing bubble that burst. And the reason for that was because too many people had borrowed too much money and they couldn't pay it back. I don't know that that's even been rectified. I think we're still possibly living under that bubble and, and, and that there may be a day of reckoning coming for that. But, but the idea was that they understood it wasn't good for a nation. Therefore, if you borrowed more money than what you were able to pay back, you had to go into indentured servitude and you had to pay that back. And there was a limit on that. Even if, even if they hadn't quite paid it back, by the time they got to a seven-year period, they had to set, set them free anyway and forgive the debt. And so, so it's this different picture than what we tend to think of. As a matter of fact, a third were in slavery and a third had been in slavery. So two-thirds of the people were within this whole system. The idea of becoming a doulos had everything to do with sometimes your security because the security in the people there were with the landowners. If you owned land, you had security. And so as a bond servant, you tied yourself, you bonded yourself to that person because of the security that they could provide for you, because of how well they treated you. And for this reason, this is why the Bible does not justify slavery. Some people say that the Bible justifies slavery. It doesn't. It does call people to pay back what they have been indebted to. And, and, the, and the, the command, therefore, is not to set the slaves free. It's for the masters to treat well those who are under their system. And, and, and so uh, we're supposed to do this, and we're supposed to honor the king, at least certainly the position of the king, right? Um, and again, that is something that we do as Christians for, for God's sake, Romans 12, 21, do not overcome evil, or do, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we get past the evil in the world? With goodness, with rightness, right? With, with not being able to have charges brought against us, with not being having the whole world able to say, yeah, but those people, those people, they're the ones. They don't, they, they, they don't do this. So should we be pacifists? Is that what the call is? Or is there a call to pacifism within Christianity? I don't believe there is at all. 
As a matter of fact, anybody that really knows me very well probably knows that I'm not really super pacifist, okay? Um, and um, so do I believe that there are things worth fighting for? Absolutely. Do I believe that there are times in which there's a call to fight? I absolutely do, okay? But how we do that and what that looks like, should we accept any government that comes along? What about Adolf Hitler? What about the church there? You know, the church really dropped the ball there, Right? So, so there's this idea that should we just sit under any government? Are we just called to be sub- subject to any government? No, we are not. We are not called to be subject to any government or what any government would do. As a matter of fact, as Christians, we stand today in the neighborhood of life, defending life, right? Defending things, marriage, life, things like that, that we, that we, we stand against our government in those areas even right now. Should we try to affect change in the government? Absolutely. Are we called to, to be agents of, of change within the culture? You bet we are. We're, we're, we're meant to be involved in government. We're meant to, to, to go out and to be teachers and to be doctors and to be scientists and to be artists and to, be, um, to work at Walmart and to do whatever we do, wherever God has called us, to do all things as to the Lord for his glory and for his benefit and in a way that the world, when they see a Christian, they go, wow, man, that guy must be a Christian. How do we know? By the way, he orders his life because he's different than the rest of the world, right? He's not posting the same stuff that everybody is on Facebook. He's not fighting the same battles in the same way. As a matter of fact, we're called to fight the battles that we fight really on our knees. So what is the standard really by which we would begin to disobey? And there are some examples here in the Bible. Daniel chapter three, we've got some guys there, right? We've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? And they've been carried off out of Israel and into Babylonian captivity, and they have been brought up to begin to serve within that culture and, and to provide leadership within the Babylonian culture. And it says in, in verse 12, there are certain Jews, so okay, so, so then there was a thing, they were like, how are we going to get these guys, how are we going to trip them up? Their, their, their behavior is so good that we don't know how we're going to trip them up, ah, Let's do this. Let's have the king make a decree that says that everybody has to bow and worship and, and give their worship to, this, uh, to these other gods, to serve these other gods. And so in, in verse 12, here's their response. These guys will not do it. They won't do it. They will not bow. They won't serve these other gods. They won't surrender or submit to this. And it says, but remember, though, they have been actively participating in furthering this culture until now. And it says, there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, their leaders in Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods, nor do they worship the golden statue which you have set up. They won't do it. They've drawn a line there. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not in need of an answer to give you concerning this matter. If it be so, Our God, whom we serve, is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. He will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods nor worship the golden statue that you have set up. We're not going to do it. And regardless if God shows up and saves us or not, it's not going to matter because we are not going to do what you've called us to do. There is a line in the sand here, and these guys have said, no, we are not going to do it. But they also are disobeying, fully understanding and knowing the reality of the consequences that they face, 
right? And saying, hey, you're going to throw us in that fiery furnace? Okay, God could rescue us. He's big enough to do that. But even if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. We get it. But we are not going to bow down. We have drawn a line in the sand and we're done. In Acts 4, um, verses 18 through 20, uh, it says, and when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This is some of the disciples. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of, of God to listen to you rather than to God, make your own judgment. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Acts 5, 28 and 29, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And so there's our standard. Our standard is, 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 is when we are under a government that begins to force us to deny our faith, to deny Christ, to 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 then, then we, we push back against this. And, and, and you know what? Here's, well, we'll talk about this here in just a second. Verse 18. Servants, be sub- subject to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are harsh. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person endures grief when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if... When you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. So again, here's this idea, again, where, where the, the, the call isn't to release the slaves. The call is, is, is really for the masters to treat them justly. But if they, even if they don't treat them justly, there's this picture here that says that there's a power in this. That there's a power in this um, in, in this passive resistance kind of a thing, a, a power that we don't always acknowledge in um, our culture. Uh, and, and, and so it says, like, just endure it with patience. Why? Right? Because when, when you're right and you're doing the right thing and somebody is treating you wrongly for it, that, that's, that, that stands out really like a sore thumb, right? See, a lot of times I think you have a lot of Christians that will say, well, I'm being persecuted today. And maybe they are or they aren't, I don't know. But I can tell you this, there's, there's a lot of people who aren't being persecuted for the cause of Christ. They're being persecuted because they're acting like jerks, right? And there's a big difference. There's a difference between being persecuted because you're living for Christ or that you're just being a jerk and people are upset with you. So, so know, you know, what, what does that look like and, 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 and knowing what does that look like to, to live? You see, because Jesus calls us into this whole thing and he says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. This is yoking. It, it's, it's joining with, it's work. It, it's, it's not go sit on the couch and eat potato chips and, and life's going to be good. No, it's come and put your yoke on with me. The world's yoke is a burden. It's burdensome. It's hard. It's difficult. It's laborious. It's, it's without meaning and purpose. But God's yoke gives us purpose. But God is doing something in this world, and he's doing it in a way that honestly is, is just an offense to my very nature sometimes. Listen to this. 
For you have been called for this purpose, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you would follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. So how do we do this? Well, we, well, we keep looking to the one who judges rightly, right? Understanding and knowing that really vengeance is God's. And that is the big call that we are not called to take vengeance. We're called to be a people who trust and know that one day all vengeance, all justice will be administered perfectly by a perfect judge, not by us. But what we're called sometimes into this ministry of suffering. And we don't want to hear that. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to deal with that. But this is very, very historical and very biblical. And, and so when, when his name is attached to our suffering, there is a power in sometimes allowing ourselves to not just seek justice for ourselves, but allowing, blessing those who are cursing us, uh, feeding our enemies, it talks about, giving them water, feeding them, right? Knowing that at the end of the day, it's, it's heaping burning coals on their head. And sometimes I think we take that as like, well, that's, that's oh yeah, I'm gonna heap some burning coals on there. I actually talked to a guy one time and he was like, he's like, yeah, he's like, she's my enemy. And so man, I'm feeding her and I'm giving her water because it's just heaping burning coals on her head. I'm like, well, that's not really the picture, you know? <laughs> The picture is, is that it begins to sear her conscience. It begins to sear the conscience when, we're, when we recognize, when we see this. You see, Jesus changed the world in the midst of the most heinous act of injustice that had ever been committed or ever will be committed. You see, there's never been anybody who experienced injustice on the level that Jesus did. There's never been a more unjust act then the perfect son of God hung on the cross to become sin for you and I. But there was a power in that. And, and I, you know, if you're like me, I can't imagine what that would be like, you know, if you're up on the cross and people are walking by going, well, if you're really who you say you are, why don't you come on down off of there and show us? I'd be like, I'm coming down right now, you know. I mean, but, but had he done that, it would have negated everything, Right? Had he, had he sought his own end in that, it would have, it would have cost us uh, the payment for sin. And so he allowed it. And why did he allow it? It says for the joy set before him, that there was a bigger picture and that that joy was you. God counted it worthwhile to allow himself to be treated that way so that he could purchase you and I. When we, when we, uh, we emulate Christ when we suffer for his name, now, remember that that's, that's not a call. You know, you're saying, well, gosh, try, can I, can I defend my family? Absolutely, defend your family. No kidding. That, that, that's very real. If somebody was being out, t attacked out on the lawn out here, fully believe Christian duty to go out there and stop it. But when Christ's name is attached to it, when it has the church involved and things like that, we do it his way. We always do it his way, don't get me wrong. 
But when Christ's name is attached to this, we, we, we have to, the church has to undergo the suffering that, that Jesus has appointed for the church. And the members of the church, if we're part of that, there's times where he's called us to suffer, to not stand up for our rights, to not do some of the things that we really want to do. Verse 24, for he himself brought, brought our sins in his body up on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. See, there's power in a passive resistance. As a matter of fact, Mahatma Gandhi modeled his passive resistance in India off of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, he wasn't a Christian. I'm not saying he was a Christian, but he applied Christian principles to his cause, and he changed India. Jesus, by passive resistance, changed the world and the calendar and us and life forever. And, and uh, there's power in this, and he's calling us to passively, steadily affect change in our culture. You see, I, I, what I fear is that as Christians, what we've started to do is to chase Christian principles. And again, do we want to live in a culture that has Christian principles? Do we want our kids to be raised in that? Absolutely. How do you get there? That's the big question. And I'm going to say that you don't get there by trying to shove those principles down the throats of unbelievers. You get there by Jesus's prescription, which is to make disciples, to go out to love the world in a way in which you can't be accused of wrongdoing, that your lives, that our lives look so much like Christ that we can't be blamed. And when, then when, if injustice comes to us, it stands out like such a sore thumb because they say that person doesn't deserve what they just got. But we're living in a world more and more and more, and we've got to get ready for this. And how we do this is important, but I'm telling you, we're living in a world and Christians in America are soon to face more and more persecution. There is about to be a true stigma tied to your faith. You have to be ready for that. And you have to know, how does God call us to face that? How does he call us to push back against that? And, and I think that, you know, what you got to do is you, you got to go here. We don't go here. We don't go off of feelings. We don't go off of what we think. We don't go off what we think it ought to be. We go here, and we make sure that what we're doing and how we're operating is in alignment with this. Because if you're a Christian, this needs to be the place that you've placed your authority under, right? This is, this is, this is the authority. I'm not the authority. And, and, and trust me, like I said, if, if I say something that's outside of the alignment with here, then don't listen to me, because I'm not the authority. God's word is the authority, and sometimes God's word comes at us in ways that we don't particularly like or appreciate. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness, and we thank you, Jesus, that you allowed yourself to experience the injustice that brought us peace, that you, that you took for us and you did for us what we could never do, and you, you did it in a different way than we would have done it that we would have just took control and we would have took power and we would have just created um, a submission that was a forced submission. But, but Lord, you've never, you've never created that kind of submission. You've, you've given us this will and asked us that we would exercise it in love. 
So help us, Lord, as believers to emulate your life, to know what that looks like, to, to rightly discern that, to understand when we need to push back against things, and even sometimes when we need to allow our own lives to experience injustice or persecution for your sake, for your kingdom, so that it might be furthered. So Lord, help us as we, as we kind of grapple in these difficult times and in these times of really political division and, and the struggle that we're in the midst of, and you know exactly where we sit. Help us, Lord, please, that we might have your perspective on it, that we might do this uh, on a way that's truly based on your word and what you've called us to do and be. So Lord, we all need, we need discernment for that. We need you to show up. We need your spirit. We need to be a people who are walking so fully in the spirit that we know how to react and how to be, not because we know, but because you do, because we wanna be so filled with you and your life that your life is flowing out of us. So Lord, help us that we might be agents of peace, that we might be peacemakers, Lord, actively pursuing peace in this world, that we might actively be involved in our work and our, our government and, and the places that you've placed us to be, that we might show the love that you have had and that you've shown each one of us here. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen.